True or false? The more physical and emotional presence that a mother has in her child's life during the first three years, the greater the chances the child will grow up emotionally healthy, secure, and resilient. We'll find out on this edition of Frank Relationships. You're listening to Frank Relationships with Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Psychoanalyst, author, and social worker Erica Kamazar is with us today. And I'm curious, what's the mother-child match? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on uh, today. And the mother-child match is, um, is important for, for bonding and attachment. And the way I would describe it is, you know, um, when a mother uh, has a child that meets her needs in certain ways, and that child has a mother who meets their needs. For instance, if a mother who is um, lacking in patience, let's mm-hmm. say, has an easy baby, um, a less demanding baby, that might be a good match, whereas a mother who has much less patience and has a very uh, demanding baby or a sensitive baby may be a less good match. And, you know, the issue is that whether or not we have a good match with our child, we have to adapt to our children, mm-hmm. particularly in the first three years. And, and what, what does a mother do with that? I mean, it's one thing for it to be theory. Yes, we have mm-hmm. to match with our children. Um, mm-hmm. But what, it, what if you don't? Right. What is your advice to that mother? How does, she discover, how does she discover whether the match is strong? Because, you know, this is a different concept for many people. And what, and what do they do as a result? So, you know, we're finding uh, in my field that more and more babies are being born um, sensitive. And sensitive is a, a way we describe both physical and emotional sensitivity. And research now shows that um, sensitivity is something that we are born with. Um, it is something in our genes. It's something in our genetic makeup. And the research shows that babies who are born sensitive, if they're provided with a mother's sensitive, empathic nurturing, it can actually neutralize their sensitivity. And sensitivity also means sensitivity to mental illness, so meaning a proclivity towards or sensitivity to depression and anxiety. And it's really fascinating research because it basically says when a mother is physically and emotionally present for her child in those first three years and is a sensitive, empathic nurturer, it can neutralize um, whether that child actually expresses some of those genes for depression and anxiety. Um, So it makes a mother's presence even more important. Hmm. I'm not sure if you know, I'm I'm reaching a little bit um, and I'm going deeper with with some of the things you said. And I don't know if you know the answer to this, but Mm -hmm. the, there have to be some diagnostics or something to to sensitivity and and while we it if we look at generations you know their technology has emerged that would i'm sure allow us to look at or or diagnose or measure sensitivity now versus 
you know, what used to exist 30 years ago. Or didn't exist. Or didn't, yes, and, or didn't exist. Yeah. How do, how, how does the research really substantiate the, the claims when those, the technology could be very different? Well, so it's an interesting question. I think one of the ways we diagnose sensitivity is, you know, when a baby is born and they're harder to, to comfort or um, they're physically uncomfortable or, um, you know, they cry more, meaning they, they have more difficulty when they're in distress. And sometimes we call it colic, yeah. um, which, you know, colic is a funny term. In my field, we say colic is, an, is as much an emotional thing as it is a physical thing because every baby has tummy issues in the beginning because babies are born with immature digestive systems. So for the first six weeks, every baby should have colic, you know, sensitivity in their gastrointestinal system. But having said that, when a baby is harder to... To, to comfort and more in distress, and we're finding more and more babies like this and fewer and fewer mothers who can bear the discomfort of their babies. Um, and there is research to show that we are not actually, because as a society we're devaluing mothering, we're not actually passing down mothering to the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, mothering is something that is passed down. The love of nurturing is passed down from generation to generation. And what we're finding is that it's actually not being passed down biologically to the next generation. Um, when we don't love nurturing our children, when we're not interested in them, when we're um, not present enough for them, and it's not being passed down to the next generation, this love of nurturing. And yet the... Sense so then, but the sensitivity you say is also more or less genetic. Am I understanding you connect correctly? Yeah, there is um, something called a short allele on a serotonin receptor. Basically, they're finding that many, many children are born with this sensitivity to the environment, sensitivity to uh, mental disorders, and 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 again, that makes it even more important that we educate mothers that whether or not they have a sensitive child, being as emotionally and physically available in those first three years from a biological perspective um, is really critical. It throws a wrench into a lot of games. Then you're talking about, should I stay home for three years or do I go back to work after six or eight weeks and send my kid to daycare? Am I harming them? You know, that... That's a can of worms. It is. For a lot of women. It's a really hard discussion to have, but from my perspective as a clinician, it's a really important one. Um, mm. I was seeing this incredibly um, sort of scary epidemic level of emotionally troubled children in my practice and in society who were being diagnosed at an earlier, an earlier age with um, stress disorders and emotional regulation disorders that were connected to the absence of mothers in their lives on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And then I started to look at the research, the neuroscience research and the attachment research and the ep epigenetics research, and I found this connection. Um, and I felt that it was an important message, even though it's a politically incorrect message. Um, you know, it's, it's an important message. Otherwise, this epidemic level of mental illness in children is just going to worsen. Am I, am I correct in in absorbing or believing that you said at some level mothers' sensitivities have decreased, the ability to, in many ways, mother has decreased while the sensitivity of children has increased? Exactly. 
Wow. That's exactly right. And well, so just, you talk about match, and mm. then you think about how the, the divide is just getting greater. So what I'm hoping a book like mine will do um, is really educate mothers, uh, you know, when they're experiencing things that society is saying are normal, I'm not seeing as normal. Meaning when a mother of a very young child says, I could never stay home with my young child, or I'm too bored to be with a baby, or I resent the dependency of that baby on me, or I can't bear this. That's a sign of postpartum depression, and our society isn't diagnosing that as postpartum depression. They're saying, oh, one in six women have postpartum depression. Those are the ones who can't get out of bed. But there's many, many women who have postpartum depression in a more nuanced way, and we're not diagnosing them, and we're not getting them help. I, I am going to ask you to help bridge a gap right now, and that mm-hmm. is, okay, I'm African-American. Nancy's African-American. Jeff, my engineer, is a white American. Jeff, say hello, please. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi there. You are, are a white female. Mm-hmm. Help. This does not feel like a topic that would be easily broached to the African-American and maybe even Latino community. Um and well, that's not. I think it's probably more socioeconomic. So, mm-hmm. um, bring bring that community to this conversation. Can you do that? Sure. Okay. So, when women have to work, because I think that's what you're implying, when women have to work, um, there are things that they can do in terms of being more present for their children. And the book really isn't about working versus non-working. Mm-hmm. It really addresses the issue that we have no maternity leave policy in this country and we need one. You know, I'm hoping that the scientific evidence in my book <clears throat> will, you know, be evidence that we need a real maternity leave policy so all women of all socioeconomic backgrounds can be with their children in the first three years as much as possible. Having said that, some because we don't have that policy yet, some women have to work. And there are things that working mothers can do, um, and some of them already do it. Interestingly, the research shows that women from very poor backgrounds and women from very affluent backgrounds, their children are actually struggling in the same ways, Mm. Um, meaning women from very poor backgrounds suffer from a lot of depression because poverty comes with depression. And when you're depressed, your children suffer meaning you pass down depression and anxiety to the next generation. So first we need to get help for those women. Mm -hmm. Um, But affluent women, women from affluent backgrounds, because neglect is neglect, um, uh, the children on either end of the spectrum are having the same kinds of symptoms. Um, You know, excessive ADHD, aggression, behavioral problems, social disorders. Mm -hmm. The, The women in the middle, what we call working class and middle class, actually do better with their children. And why? One reason is the kinds of jobs that they have mean when they come home at night, they don't bring homework home. Okay. They're actually with their children. Um, also, what I always say in my practice, that children pick up on their parents' unconscious. When a mother really wants to be with her child mm-hmm. and she comes home, there's a kind of mourning that happens. Um, and I interviewed 50 women for my book from all different um, races, socioeconomic, religious backgrounds because it, it, it's not meant to be a, a, a book for affluent white women. It's a book for everyone. Mm-hmm. And the women who, whose intentions and desires were to be with their children were able to do this kind of mourning with their children, meaning were sad when they left, um, were able to reflect their children's sadness, and when they came home, they didn't go out again. 
Mm. So when they came home at 5.30, there was no fancy job to go back out to. There were no emails to address. They were with their children. Um, And so it's an interesting question that you're posing, but there are ways for working mothers to be as present as possible. And, you know, again, I advocate for our government to really um, address this issue as a serious, not a luxury issue, um, having maternity leave policies. Because maternity leave policies do exist in other countries. Of course. I mean, we're the only civilized country in the world that doesn't recognize the value of the the mother-child relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, Frank, posing the question and, and, and in fact recognizing that it really is a socioeconomic issue, mm-hmm. not just black and Latino, but yeah. I will say immigrant populations that are coming of age, mm-hmm. which has happened over the past hundred years, let's say. Yes. The bigger issue, and, and I'll internalize this because I grew up in kind of a, a, a homogenized community. Mm-hmm. I had just as many white friends from middle class or upper middle class backgrounds who didn't see their father five, six days a week because they worked so much. They were latchkey kids, Mm -hmm. whether the mother worked or was out at, I don't know, yoga class Uh or working, as I did African-American friends who were raised by their grandmother Mm -hmm. who were either fatherless or the father was working as well Mm -hmm. too much Mm -hmm. to be a part of. They weren't at the Little League games. They weren't at the Boy Scout um, meetings, even though, again, those groups were homogenized. The question here, and I'm going to pose it to Erica, is there's a word matters in the title of your book. Why prioritizing motherhood in the first three year matters. Matters to who? To the mother? To the kid? Is it a reflection on eventual success or health or all of the above? What does matters mean? a good question. So matters means matters to the child because, you know, obviously we're talking about children's mental health and when children are not well, it matters to the parents because, you know, I've never met a a mother or father who, um, if their child isn't doing well, is doing well. Um, Even though at the moment they may make choices um, not in the best interest of their children without knowing they're making those choices. In the end, if their children don't do well, parents don't do well. And then it matters to society. And, you know, I just wrote an op-ed piece. Hopefully it will get printed in one of the papers, but basically about how it matters from, a, from an economic perspective. You know, when we have such an increase in mental illness, it's, it matters from an economic perspective for society. Um, it also matters as to whether we, we're really producing healthy human beings. We're putting out healthy human beings into the world who can be productive, who can have healthy and loving relationships, Um, You know, we have an increase in depression and anxiety in adults. So remember, we're talking about children, but children grow up into adults. Mm -hmm. So this critical window of development, meaning by three years old, children, 85% of children's right or social-emotional brain is developed, that casts a long shadow into their lives and into adulthood. So, you know, we now have a 400% increase since the 80s in children between the ages of 12 and 19 um, on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, and that goes into adulthood. I mean, we have hundreds of percentile of mental illness increase in adults. Um, so that does affect society. Um, you know, so, so it, basically it matters to everyone. Would you speak to the, the affluent side mm-hmm. that, uh, that exists? And I'm, what I'm really getting at is the, the affluent side that may 
hire nannies to mm. to work with their children? So, as I said, you know, you know, neglect is neglect is neglect. It yes. doesn't matter where that neglect comes from. It doesn't matter whether it's coming from poverty. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's coming from affluence, meaning affluent parents have more choices. And in having more choices, they tend to spend less time with their children. Um, and that is getting passed down to the next generation. So if a mother values other things, and I'm not going to say working versus non-working. I'm going to say, um, you know, someone who's affluent has many choices and they may choose even if they're a stay-at-home mother, not to be with their children and have a nanny. Um, you know, when you have too many choices, you tend to, um, you don't always make the right choices. And so, you know, those children who are with nannies are um, not spending enough time with their, with their mothers, and I see this population in my practice. Um, the other thing I want you to consider is that many of those nannies are leaving their own children. Mm. To wow. care for these affluent right. families' children. Right. That's um, a powerful I, yeah. distinction yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, and so I did training, and I do training for a nanny agency called Nannies Who Know in New York, and it basically trains nannies to be emotionally sensitive and emotionally intelligent. Mm. Many of those nannies had young children themselves. And the sadness in the morning in those nannies who had to leave their own children to care for somebody else's children. Um, so we're also quite insensitive in our society as to all mothers needing to be with their children in these early years. Because maybe there's a little, I'm thinking, isn't the motherhood instinct transferable? And, uh, you know, but your child is your child, you know, and, and I can see maybe if only out of guilt, a nanny is not necessarily bringing the same level of presence uh, an emotional sensitivity to another child that she's being paid to care for versus her own. Yep. And yet I expected at some point in the conversation that you were going to say something about women, especially women who uh, have to work or, uh, you know, whatever the circumstances are, kind of created these other networks of nurturing that help to sustain uh, the child and in her absence, but you're essentially saying it needs to be the mother. So mothers are unique, um, and they're unique in many ways, but primarily because your mother, you know, caregivers will come and go, and that's the reality of caregiving. You know, I've trained some wonderful caregivers, loving, nurturing caregivers, but in the end, their investment in that child is less than the mother because they're not going to be with that child forever. And they know that. If they don't know it on a conscious level, they know it on an unconscious level. Um, you know, I always say, if you, if you can't be there, if you have to work, the best surrogate caregivers are kinship bonds, meaning right. your family. I was getting ready to say, yeah, I was thinking more like family. Yeah, because your family has a similar investment in your children as you do. I mean, right. they're going to be there forever. Right. Um, you know, there's a researcher that I highlight in the book, and she basically went around the world to see whether mothering, sensitive mothering, was a universal thing or whether it was culturally relative. And she's a really interesting lady, Judy Mesman. Um, and basically she found out that in all part. first of all, she found out that maternal sensitivity is a universal thing. It's not culturally relative, which is important. But she also found out that in all parts of the world, we do something called alloparenting, um, which is that we have multiple attachment figures, meaning there's many people who can care for a child and love a child. Mm -hmm. But in other parts of the world, the mother is always still physically proximate to the baby. So if the grandmother's there, the aunt's there, the next-door neighbor who you call aunt is there, 
the baby may be handed off to one of those women, but when, when the baby is in distress, the baby goes back to the mother. Right. Okay. That's alloparenting. Okay. So what we did is we took that idea in our society, in Western society, and we perverted it to say, oh, what we do is alloparenting because we take our babies and we leave them in the care of others and we go away for 10 hours and we come back. Yes. That's not alloparenting because the mother is not proximate to the baby. So when the baby is in distress, the mother is still the center of gravity and the source of security for that child. So mm. we perverted that idea in our society. But we, we do not have the kinds of support systems that we used to have and that we need that's one of the biggest changes in society is that we used to live amongst our family, right. and now we don't. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a really big problem because women are getting more postpartum depression because they're more isolated than ever before. You spoke, you used the term neglect, and neglect mm -hmm. is a powerful term, mm -hmm. and it could even be a legal term. And, and you, it may be difficult making the case to an affluent mother that she's neglecting her child by leaving the child with a nanny. Would you help to make that case to that affluent mother that's listening or the affluent father that's listening? Again, the best way I can make the argument is to say um, that mothers provide, um, there's couple of unique functions that mothers provide from a biological perspective. One is that they protect children from stress. Children are born, um, according to a lot of research, nine months too early without a central nervous system to deal with environmental stress. So basically mothers are the nervous system for the baby. We say mothers are the emotional skin for the baby in the first. Imagine if you didn't have skin. You know, and you were exposed and all of your nerves were exposed. That's what a newborn experience is when they come into the world. Um, mothers are basically the skin for the baby in the first year. And then for the next two years, really protect children from moment to moment uh, from stressful experiences. Um, and that lays the foundation for resilience to stress forever. So, you know, there's all this stuff now in the news about, you know, Sheryl Sandberg is writing a book about stress resilience. Stress resilience starts in the first three years. Mm -hmm. It's that moment-to-moment -moment protection from stress that lays the foundation down for your life to be able to cope with adversity. Mm -hmm. That's the first function that mothers provide. The second one on a biological level is they regulate a baby's emotions from moment to moment. Every time a baby cries and the mother comforts the baby, she's basically regulating the baby's emotions. So imagine standing on a rowboat, um, and the rowboat's constantly tipping, and you're constantly balancing the rowboat and keeping the boat from going in the water, keeping yourself from going in the water. That's what a mother does all day long with the baby's emotions. So now what happens when the mother isn't there? You know, children aren't objects. You don't leave them on the counter like a vase and come back in 10 hours or 8 hours, and they're in the same place and nothing's happened to them. Right. They've been um, rocking all day long. Um, and if you get a very nurturing babysitter or nanny, they can do some of that. But mothers, there's research to show that mothers are unique in terms of um, babies identifying mothers um, from sight, smell, all of their senses that mothers have a unique relationship to babies in terms of regulating their emotions and emotional security. Welcome to Frank Relationships, a show for you, my brethren, who, like me, are too young to be considered old and too old to be considered young. It's also for those of you who love and support us. We're here to provide weekly wisdom 
conversation and the information that will help create loving and flexible parents and partners. I'm Frank Love, and you can find me, my blog, and my various social media incarnations at franklove.com. If you're listening to the show on Blog Talk Radio, please follow us, and via iTunes, please subscribe so that you can effortlessly get the show each week. Also, if you're enjoying the show, and of course you are, please give us a favorable iTunes rating and please share it with your family and friends on your favorite social media platform. We're always looking for new social media friends, so please help us help our communities by spreading the word about the show. Greetings to my co-host, Nancy Goring. Hi, Frank. How you doing? I'm great. Great, great, great. How are you? I'm great. Consummate yeah. generalist. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Today's guest is a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and parent guidance expert who's been in private practice in New York City for the last 27 years. She's a graduate of Georgetown and Columbia University and the New York Freudians, Freudian Society. She's a psycho, psychological consultant bringing parenting and work-life workshops to clinics, schools, corporations, and childcare settings and lives in New York with her husband and three teenage children. And she believes that children are at a higher risk for social, emotional, and developmental issues when the essential presence of a mother is missing. So, if you, like me, want to know how to establish an emotional connection with a newborn or young child, how a mom can combat feelings of postpartum depression or boredom, and how a mom can take control of career and family choices to prioritize parenting in the first three years. Then stay tuned as your Frank Relationship team talks with psychoanalyst, social worker, and the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, Miss Erica, Mrs. Erica Commissar. Again, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. Before, well, we're, we're way deep into the interview, but uh, <laughs> we, we do a segment called uh, In the News. What's in the news? So, Erica, um, we're going to throw something on the floor. Please don't be bashful. Certainly weigh in with your opinion. It may have nothing to do with your book or okay. your expertise, but just humor us for a few minutes. Okay, okay I, got, I got one. I recently read an article that asked the question, what do we owe? the new partner of our abuser. Mm, The new partner of our abuser. Yes. Wow. Needless to say, I thought it was an interesting question. Yeah. Mm. Well, the the first thing that came to my mind was he may not abuse her. He? Well, okay, I apologize, (laughs) Jeff. The, your past abuser you know uh, one's past abuser may not abuse their next romantic mm-hmm. i hate to say target but mm-hmm. <laughs> because you said may my answer is a warning mm. you okay. may or may not be aware of this but look at this frying pan scar on my head <laughs> mm-hmm. right 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 i, I I wonder, I wonder on the other side, is it, do we owe our abuser, abuser's new partner, 
anything? A, well, do we owe them anything? But do we also owe ourselves a real assessment of how, God, this is, this is tricky, a real assessment of how we showed up in that relationship? Mm. Just oh, was, no question. What, how do we conclude that it was abusive? And is it possible? What if you're, what if you were abusive and you don't even know it and you're calling the other person abusive? Maybe you were both abusive. How do you regulate that kind of conversation? Hmm. Such that you could responsibly share it as such. With yourself and anyone else. All right. All right. Hmm. Erica, you got Stunt. anything on that? Well, again, I'm thinking about the first question. It's a very complicated question. You know, as a therapist, um, I focus on my patient who's come to me who was abused mm -hmm. and not on, I mean, their responsibility is really to heal themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think by modeling that, in a way they model that for whoever is around them, um, they're, if, in fact, they're in contact with their ex-partner right. and, and their partner's new spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend. or um, I think by, by healing yourself and by, you know, becoming more self-aware and healthier, you're modeling something for those around you um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, warning a, a partner. I agree with you that it, it it isn't necessarily the same kind of relationship that your ex-partner is going to have with their new partner. Um, so, you know, you also have to monitor your aggression um, and your desire to harm the ex-partner and the new, you know, because, you know, in a deeply unconscious way, you could have feelings about that ex-partner having a new wife or, or, or husband. Or, um, so I think in a way you have to monitor your own aggression and need to get involved Mm -hmm. in a relationship that is no longer your intimate relationship. Mm. I'm thinking of Adele's song. Uh, how does it go? Oh, wait, wait. Do you even, do you know Adele, Erica? I don't really know much about Adele. Wait a I, minute. I, I don't, but I, I love what I read about her choosing to be with her baby. Okay. That's, that's, you know, I that's didn't what get I know this, of Adele. I didn't um, get all I, this yeah. noise yesterday about Tom Brady. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I, I got, oh, you know who Tom Brady is, and I just Did listened. You? Oh, okay. Yeah. And I thought to myself, does Tom Brady know Nancy Goldring? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me ask. But I interrupted like you. I interrupted you, Erica. I apologize. <laughs> I'd like to know her to thank her for what she's done in terms of publicly stating that. You know, she's got this short window with her with her newborn, and she really chose not to, you know, go on tour while she had a newborn, um, so she could be as present as possible. So, if Adele, if you're listening, um, I thank you for that message to women that life is long and you can do everything in life, but not all at the same time. Mm. What do you right. mean if she's listening? Everybody <laughs> listens there to you this go. show. Well, thank you, Adele. <laughs> if she's not, she will be. Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, wow. Uh, I also read an... Oh, hold on, Jeff. You got something for us? Uh-oh. Oh, the whole thing. Something to your... Okay. Well, this is Just Adele. an example, because she's awesome. Yeah, she is. I fabulous. don't know what song you're referring to. <laughs> oh. 
met you. Oh yeah, this was the big one. She showed up to give that woman a warning about the abuse. Mm. <laughs> I was just thinking that. There you that. go. There you go. I knew she had one for me. I know she had one for me. Okay. You, you've definitely segued into Adele well. Thank you. <laughs> and the topic. Yeah. How about that? Uh, okay. I, I also saw an article in uh, Bustle.com called... The seven seven relationship goals for 2017 that are realistic game changers. I'm going to throw a few out there, and then we're going to go back to the good stuff that okay. we were talking about. Okay. Um, to one Goal number one, to actually be happy together. Number two. Which requires that you're happy with together. yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you're actually happy. Right, right, right. Two, to do something new once a month. Three, to keep remembering what you love about one another. Four, to have regular date nights. Five, to find a way to give back. Six, to show your appreciation for each other every damn day. Mm -hmm. And I quote. (laughs) And seven, support each other's separate goals. Mm. So... Give back to the greater community, I imagine you mean. Because yeah. you sewed that up with appreciation for each other every day. Yes. Okay, yes. got it. Well, those are bland. Yeah, 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 I think so. I yeah. mean, there's not much to say there. Yeah. I would I would add one. Okay. I know I can't add one because you took it off an article, or but I would add patience. Because mm. all relationships take patience. Oh. And I think that's severely lacking in society now. I absolutely um, agree. Yeah, patience and frustration tolerance, the ability to tolerate frustration and to deal with conflict. That is really absent. I I met a gentleman on a plane a few days ago and he and and he's going to be on the show. He's mm-hmm. a horse trainer. And he said people well I was asking him about the the different the different principles that he puts into play when he's training a horse and he was saying it takes like six months to train a horse he he goes to get horses he lives in virginia and he's gone as far away as california to get horses to bring them back to his ranch to train them for extensive period of time and he was saying that people really don't know how to be patient Mm -hmm. that we think is in some ways we think it's just waiting and seething but it's 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 being still with a he he quoted a young girl that uh, that said when he asked her what is patience he quoted her as saying it's being still with a happy heart. Mm-hmm. Perfect. 
that is beautifully stated that is well stated yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so does does uh it, am i putting words in your mouth erica or does that does that touch on patience as you see it well it's also touching on being a present mother so in the book i talk a lot about mindfulness mm-hmm. and that's exactly what you're describing mm-hmm. um you know the ability to be quiet and to be with with a baby is a much slower pace and requires a great deal of slowing down and being patient and getting off of the treadmill that we're on. Um, in modern society, we live life at a very fast pace um, with much too much stimulation all the time in the environment. And mm-hmm. as a result, we no longer have the, the ability. And as I said, things are passed down from generation to generation. We no longer have the ability to be with ourselves, to be with our babies, to get off the treadmill and to slow down. Remember Bernie Mac? Mm-hmm. Bernie Mac says, there are no more big mamas. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that to me communicates what you're saying about passing down yep. nurturing. Mm-hmm. We used to get nurturing from big mama. Yeah. Yep. And if big mama's gone, then yep. as uh, Bernie's sketch said, you know, the mother's getting ready to go out to the club with the, with the daughter. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Yep. We've talked mm. we're we're talking clearly so much about mothering, but I I want to touch on fathering and how you how you believe that to be valuable because you're you're speaking to a lot of men right now and I don't it's important that we not leave them out of the conversation um for a few reasons. One because in my, if for no other self-serving purpose, I believe that they're important. I happen to be one. <laughs> and also, it's important for, if you're correct in the importance of mothering, and I do believe you are, it's important for fathers to support mothers as they nurture. So please, speak to the importance of fathering. So I agree with you entirely. Fathers are critical. Um, mothers and fathers are critical, but for different reasons. And, um, you know, what's, what research shows is that when mothers and fathers nurture, they both produce something called oxytocin, which is this neurotransmitter in the brain. We sometimes call it the love or bonding hormone. Um, and when mothers produce it, meaning when mothers nurture their children, healthy mothers, they produce a lot of it. And it makes them more sensitive, more empathic, um, more tuned into the baby's feelings. And when fathers nurture their children, they produce it too, but it makes them more playfully stimulating. It makes them throw the baby up in the air higher, tickle the baby more. It makes them encourage resilience and independence, early independence in children. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are real biological reasons for this. And by the way, fathers are, are necessary Um, Their presence is necessary for a few things, for separation, meaning fathers have for thousands of years helped children to separate from their mothers. So mothers were always the object of attachment and emotional security, and then fathers said, come on over here and play with me, you know, the water's fine, come away from your mother, it's okay. And and they were always necessary to help children to separate. So Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is in lots of single mother families where there are no men involved, um, children aren't having such an easy time separating. The other things that fathers do is that they help to regulate children's aggression, specifically aggression. Um, mm-hmm. They model for little boys in particular um, how to regulate their aggression. So when fathers are absent, th- there are also consequences that are different than mothers. Um, but in the first 
three years, the first zero to three period of critical brain development, empathic, sensitive, maternal nurturing is what is necessary to grow the social-emotional brain. Um, so you'd say fathers are critical and necessary to support mothers so they can do what they need to do in those early years, and then they're necessary to help children to separate and explore the world and play. And, you know, so, so they're both important but for different reasons. You, um, you mentioned a, a, a bit ago that children are now or, or perceived as being born nine months too early. Mm-hmm. Now, given that children are born when they're born, you know, after incubating for roughly nine months, I mean, it, would, it could be hard to make that case that they're born nine months too early. I mean, they get here when they get here, and this is, the, the, this is, this is nature. This is what God has given Maybe. us. Maybe. Okay, okay. How do you, I mean, how do you connect with someone that says, uh, you know, yeah, right, nine months too late, nine well, months too early? As I'm, as I'm hearing you, Erica, it sounds like you're saying, that the baby may be in utero for nine months, but then it needs easily an additional nine months to complete that process, and it does it best with its mother. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I mean, think of a kangaroo. You I should mean, see the side it, eye he's giving yeah, me right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, where you have a baby in a pouch. Or think of the most babies in the developing world. They live on their mother's bodies in the right. first year until they can no longer carry them. Um, close to the mother's heartbeat, close to the mother's skin, um, so they are regulated by the mother's breathing. Um, What research shows is that babies in the developing world cry much less than babies in the Western world. Right. That's so interesting. Because their mother is constantly regulating them, Mm -hmm. and they're physically in contact with their mothers in the first year. And even the idea that we, when babies are born, we put them in a crib, or in a nursery, you know, John Bowlby, the father of attachment, changed that. And when he went into hospitals in England and he said, oh, no, babies need to lie with their mothers in the hospital rooms, not in these nurseries separated from their mothers. They've been inside their mother's bodies for nine months. They've basically grown around the sound of her blood flowing and her heart beating and the smell of her. And this is what gives them a sense of security. And now you're putting, wrapping them and putting them in another room away from their mothers. Um, so, yeah, we understand now that um, the first three years is really um, critical, but you'd say in the first year, um, you know, the only reason that babies, to answer your question, Frank, the only reason babies are born when they are is because mothers could never carry them for another nine months from a physical perspective, meaning it would kill us. Mm-hmm. It would require so much energy that it would kill us. Um, so, you know, that's why, that's the theory, you know, it used to be that their brains were too big and they couldn't fit through the birth canal, but in truth, it's that carrying a baby for another nine months would kill the mother, the host, you'd say. Mm -hmm. But in fact, they do need you there, um, particularly in that first year, um, as if they were in utero. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nancy, uh, spoke of the side eye that I gave her and I, I just really want to, to say she shut me up. Like, what? I mean, I, th- her answer was so good that <laughs> I, I... I thought he loved that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that why I'm here? <laughs> I meant to warn you about that abuse before you started that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. <laughs> so Erica is really, uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with the gentleman you mentioned, but I am vaguely familiar with something 
called the continuum concept, which to me speaks to speaks a lot to what you are saying. Mm -hmm. And because I, I actually was surfing through the um, bibli the chapter bibliographies to see if there was any mention of uh, that work there, and I didn't see it, but it is from like '75, so that could be have a lot to do with it. But I'm certain you're aware of it. Mm -hmm. Can you mm -hmm. speak to it? Um, it's very similar. Um, yeah. It, you know, and the concept being, um, you know, that that there is your baby is born fragile, and and again, I think there's a denial. I think the problem is that right now in society, there's a denial of children's fragility. That children mm -hmm. are born incredibly fragile. They're not born resilient. Resilience is built into them through emotional security. So the more they can be dependent on you for emotional security in the first three years, the more really, truly resilient they'll be. You know, you can force children to adapt to anything. You can make them um, adapt to a mother being absent. But what happens is they really are forming defenses, um, what we call defensive independence rather than real, true independence based on emotional security. Mm. So we really um, don't have a great understanding of just how fragile babies are born and that for the first three years, they're not resilient, they're not independent, they're not strong like we think they are. They're actually quite fragile and they need us a great deal. I remember a expose that was done and I bet I bet you I bet you guys remember this because it was really it was powerful for me. And it was probably the early 90s or even maybe the 80s on I think it was either 2020 or Nightline. And I think it was Geraldo Rivera mm. who did. He was looking at how mothers, mothers that shall we say coddle or play to their children at bedtime end up uh, perpetuating a, a, a crying culture um, when the baby was being put to sleep. But when it, and he did a video, he did a series of videos um, where a child was put to, to in a crib on, on you know, and we're talking, when we're talking a child, we're probably talking a child that was 18 months, something like that. Okay. Um, child was put in a crib and the first night cried, boo-hooed for an hour and then, you know, cried themselves to sleep. Second night may, may have been the same thing. The third night or, or somewhere down the line, the child began to, when put in the bed, just went to sleep. And it stopped being a, a, a big Production. brouhaha. Yeah, right. um, how, do you, how do you speak to that, Erica? Or do you, First off, I'm curious. Is it just me? Am I the only one that remembers this? Yes. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> you antique. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like what you said prior about this kind of defense that the baby builds up mm -hmm, that's over right. time is you what you're... You beat me to the punch. That's yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, you can get to. babies to adapt to anything. The truth is that the research shows that nighttime security, meaning comforting your child in the middle of the night, is even more important than daytime security. Mm. So, you know, again, the misunderstanding. I'm hoping the book educates people about all these myths and misunderstandings that, um, you know, when a baby cries, they're doing it to annoy you or, you know, aggravate you or keep you up or 
you know, and the resentment of that baby. But if there's empathy for that baby and understanding that babies usually cry because they are scared, Mm. because they feel alone, because they feel vulnerable. And nighttime is the hardest time for them because they're really separated from you um, and they're scared. And so if you can have empathy for that baby, then you can overcome your, uh, how should I say it, your impatience, your resentment, um, but I think there's a real misunderstanding of this idea of sleep training. Um, you know, training babies to sleep or even trying before they're six to nine months old is just cruel. What about 18 months? So at 18 mm. months, usually children can tolerate little bits of frustration, and it depends on the child. You may be able to provide lots of security for your child before bed, spending lots of time with them, giving them lots of loving, nurturing routines, and just physically physically being with them um, as much as they need. And then they may be able to go to sleep by themselves, but the more security you give them before they go to sleep, the more secure they'll feel separating from you. Because remember, sleep is separation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. You're listening to Frank Relationships, and we're talking with psychoanalyst, social worker, and the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Mrs. Erica Commissar. Uh, Erica, would you, would you tell us what you're up to and how we can find you? So uh, my book can be bought in any bookstore and online, and I have a website. It's www.commissar.com. That's K-O-M-I-S-A-R. Mm-hmm. You, you are very strong in your dislike for the term stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I mean, again, I think it, what it's done is it's, it's really created a rift in, in between women. Um, you know, we have this war between women who work and women who stay at home. Um, and the truth is you want all mothers to be as emotionally and physically present as possible in the first three years. And those are stay-at-home moms and working moms. You can be a mom who is physically available to your children, but is emotionally checked out. Mm. So the truth is you need to be there physically as much as possible and emotionally as much as possible. You know, it's the old argument about quality versus quantity. You need both. Um, and, And so, yeah, I do have an issue with that term because, you know, I like the term presence more because you really want to encourage all mothers to be as present as possible in the first three years. Mm hmm what what advice do you give and i'm going to give you some uh some different shall we say populations to speak to and some scenarios what advice do you give to judges you're talking to a room full of judges mm-hmm. what what's your counsel to them on on the matter at hand to to judge to judges yes um meaning custody balance yes yes family family judges Oh, meaning how much children should be with their mothers in the first three years? Um, Well, what I say to, you know, when when I'm dealing with a family who's going through divorce, I encourage the father as much as he wants to be with his children and he loves his children, as long as the mother is a healthy mother, because, again, we're Mm -hmm. assuming the mother is emotionally healthy, Mm -hmm. that children need their mothers as they're proximal to their mothers for security. So better for fathers to come and spend as much time with those children as possible, but not necessarily take them away from their children in the first three years. If the mother is not emotionally healthy or is mentally ill or is very depressed or is, you know, addicted to a substance, that's a different, you know, that that becomes a different thing. But um, when a mother is healthy, yeah, the child needs the mother for emotional security. Remember that alloparenting model. 
So, yes, the father should be an alternative attachment object, but the, the baby needs, when in distress, to go back to their primary attachment object, which is usually the mother. And what about, let's say, a four-year-old, five-year-old? You know, as children get older, they have more capability to separate for short periods of time, and depending on the child, and if you're sensitive to your individual child, you can see the signs when they've been away too long or you've been away too long. So I think the idea is just to be very sensitive to the child that God gave you and say, you know, to look at that child and to see how they're doing with the separation and do it rather incrementally rather than all at once. Yeah, I used to hear that it was five. Like you're saying uh, this this attachment situation needs to be focused on in the first three years. And I remember years ago mm -hmm. uh, hearing actually a man say, your child, especially your son, you can have him for the first five years. After that, goodbye, Mom. He's it's mine. all about Dad. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that, you know, and I, and I wondered to myself if the... Um, the idea of three years was sort of a cutback as the minimum that that we can tolerate in this conversation because five would just, you know, if you told women they had to spend the first five years with their kids, they would just not even buy the book, you know what I mean? So, well, that's true. <laughs> we, need, we need our mothers uh, really throughout childhood to be present. Mm. But, you know, there are these critical windows. And so, um, you know, the first three years really gives you the ability to tolerate lots of adversity and to tolerate more separation as you get older. If we don't give our children those first three years, they're really not going to have the ability to tolerate separation later. Now, I know the one thing I want to ask you before we have to go is mm -hmm. uh, what, are you, what, are you, what is your counsel for men who are in situations where, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. the mother of the child is n either not present or no longer present, or in the situations that you've captured in this conversation, she's unavailable emotionally. Then what fathers other or whoever is the surrogate caregiver needs to be as much like a mother as possible. So okay. when somebody comes to me, I try to teach them to be as sensitive and empathic as nurturers as possible. So some of these things can be taught. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What about lesbian couples? Or uh, same-sex couples. Well, so, it's different. I mean, okay. I would, I would, and I'm going to ask that about Double men, mothers. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. two men raising children. But I can imagine it's a different conversation. Um, at least there's some differences with just okay. a lesbian couple the, that is mothering. How do you? What do you say to them? So lesbians are. You might get two mothers there, and yes. you might have to help one to become more like a father. And with two gay men, you have to teach one to be a mother. Mm. Um, so even when we're single mothers or single fathers, we need to have another alternative figure in, in that child's life. Um, okay. Mothers and fathers can't perform both attachment and separation. We really need two people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that means if you're a single mother, maybe it's an uncle, maybe it's uh, you know, your brother or a good friend. Or, but, yeah, you need to really assign someone to be each role. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you, what, what is the, uh, the strange situation experiment? The strange situation is basically an old attachment experiment where, um, you know, a stranger comes into the room and really tests the emotional security of that child, um, meaning how the child reacts to the stranger coming in, then how the child reacts to the mother leaving the room. <coughs> and it was a way for attachment researchers to really start to understand uh, emotional security and attachment in the early days. 
Which means that the more comfortable a child is with a stranger, the more emotionally secure the child is? No, not necessarily. Um, You actually want a child to cry when their mother leaves the room. You don't want to see no response. And when you see a child overly attached or too easily attached to a stranger, it's usually a sign of an attachment disorder. That's heavy. That is. Somebody sent me a video uh, last week, actually, (laughs) and it was an experiment. The guy went to a park, and he wanted to make the case of how easily children can be abducted by strangers. Mm-hmm. And so the, the mother is present. He goes over to the child's mother and asks that she point out her child, and he wants to play this game, don't talk to strangers. And she, he says, what do you think your child is going to do? She said, he's, oh, he's, you know, she or he is not going to go with you, blah, blah, blah. Without exception, he walked over to the children. He said, hi. Uh, he had a puppy. Mm-hmm. He asked the kids their name, and every last one of them walked away with the guy. I mean, got mm-hmm. up, walked away, didn't even turn around looking for their mom. Usually, mm-hmm. a sign of an attachment disorder. And what is an attachment disorder? Um, when children aren't emotionally secure enough, when they aren't, in, when they don't have their mother present enough in the first three years, mm-hmm. to even make that distinction. Yep. <sighs> Wow, yep. You're listening to Frank Relationships, and we've been talking with psychoanalyst, social worker, and the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. This is uh, Erica Commissar. Erica, one more time, please tell us what you're up to and how we can find you. Um, My website is www.commissar.com, K-O-M-I-S-A-R, and you can buy being there on um, on the internet or on uh, at bookstores. Along today's journey, we've discussed the attachment disorder. We've discussed fathering and and whole and a whole array of issues around the importance of mothering, mm. and why why fathers should be supportive why families and communities should be supportive and why mothers should be supportive of themselves and uh, being present in the child's life for the first three years. It's a commitment. It is. It is. And it's a beautiful one. Yes. You, you're, the conversation we've had with you has been very humbling, Erica. It's, it's, um, I hope it is for our audience as much as it has been for me. Um, it, it, helps to, it helps to paint a picture of the importance of of mothering and how everyone gets an opportunity to be supportive of that uh, of that critical relationship and and dynamic. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Nancy, my co-host. Sure. Thank you to Jeff Newman, my engineer, and once again, thank you to my great guest, Erica Commissar. I hope you've had as much fun as I've had hanging out with today's ensemble. As always, it's my wish for you to walk away from this conversation with a heaping helping of useful information that'll help you create a relationship that's as loving and accepting as possible. Let us know what you thought of today's show at Facebook forward slash Relationship F Love, on Twitter at Mr. That's M-R Frank Love, or at FrankLove.com. If you're listening via Blog Talk Radio, make sure you like us there, and via iTunes, make sure you subscribe so that you can receive each week's show. This is Frank Love.